so David Claim Smith is an author of many, many books. You're an alchemical cartographer, I guess, and writer. Um, would that be a, a correct title for, for what you do, among yeah, other you, things? Yeah. I use the term esoteric cartography. Esoteric um, specifically here refers to the esoteric forms of um, mysticism and spirituality, and cartography is the practice of map making. Right, map and making. Not only are my visual works maps of mystical territories, methodologies, precepts that go into one's practice, but also I view my writing as a kind of a map making uh, mm -hmm. because what I'm doing is not stating a definitive um, presentation of anything in, in an absolute sense. I'm presenting my practice, essentially. I'm mapping out what I have done. Mm. So the difference is that when one states spiritual or religious precepts with a kind of absolutist point of view, you are stating something that is uh, set out as equal for everybody, you know, and one must rise to the occasion of mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. absolutist statement. I'm not doing that. I'm just merely giving you my data. Right. This is what I've done. And it changes right. as I change. Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing is actually giving a detailed map of the uh, transmutation of my own phenomena. Right. So maybe before we get into what that map is or what exactly you are mapping um, <laughs> and your view, et cetera, uh, you could give you know our listeners just an outline a little bit about, about your story. You're, you were telling me a bit about your, your youth in, in Queens and uh, growing up, and, and uh, it seems like you've had a very interesting life and a wild ride. So, so maybe, maybe people would like to hear about that. Well, I don't know how much detail you need on this subject. I got a lot of stories for sure. I grew up uh, in the 70s, in the 1970s in New York City, when things were really falling apart. The various systems of the city, due to the uh, bankruptcy in the mid-70s of New York City and the deterioration of the services of everything from police to sanitation to the school system and all that, everything was just falling apart. So in this chaotic mixture, you know, I, I reconciled entropy. <laughs> it was, it was basically the, my worldview was formed in the midst of um, collapse. Basically. Right. So, so lower East side, um, you talked a little bit about as a young person in the Lower East Side and and uh, being kind of a street kid in, in some ways, right? And getting into drugs and all that, and then and then becoming an artist later on. Well, my family uh, were well-to-do people, but I didn't stick around very much uh, around the family home. I was pretty much out and about at a very early age. You know, like by 11 or 12, I basically had a life that nobody had any idea about, uh, which took place, um, you know, mostly downtown Manhattan, like you said. Um, and I ended up 
just pursuing a, a life of debauchery, but at the same time had these really strong interests in uh, as as a teenager in um, surrealism and uh, aspects of a kind of uh, uh, an absurdist visionary view of mm -hmm. the universe that I pursued um, voraciously. I was just addicted to um, basically the the elements that made the artists that I was digesting um, become what they were. It's funny because the difference is that the works that many of the surrealists produced and the causes of why they became that way were at odds with each other. I don't feel that surrealist artists forever, you know, what they seem to be implying that they wanted was a sort of a subliming of phenomena, a sort of mm -hmm. numinous insight into the nature of reality, because they wrote about this all the time and they made references to it, but they, they never even came close because really they were, for the most part, careerists. They were just mm -hmm. regular artists, ordinary people who fell into a historical time period, which was cataclysmic, you know, uh, mostly between the end of World War One and the beginning of World War Two in um, in Europe. That's, I think, the cauldron of of where it really gelled. Hmm. And by 1945, when World War Two was over, I think that the movement was spent completely. Right. Uh, Maybe that I, that links up with, I guess, what you've called in other interviews I've listened to. This sort of dead end of of psychedelia, right? That it. it this bending of, of reality um, that, that sort of leads you to maybe have a, a, an inkling of, of something greater, but which kind of leads to some, some sort of a dead end. Is that what you're expressing when you're talking about the surrealists? Is it, is it sort of a bit of what, what happened to you? Well, what I was saying about the surrealists is I, I intuited that many of them probably would have wanted a spiritual practice if they knew that such a thing was even possible. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they did, and I'm not sure that they understood the dynamics and the requirements and the circumstances that would be necessary for investigating such a thing. I think they were more into their own, like I said, their own careers and the development of themselves as artists. The problem with psychedelia is another matter that is related and really that has to do with the nature of experience because psychedelia in all its forms is experientially based. It is brain activity that is going on. People are, are investigating the outer limits of brain activity. The difference between that and mysticism is mysticism might use brain activity as a springboard, but ultimately what mysticism is cited at is the investigation of awareness beyond brain, beyond experience, beyond personal identification and the flux and flow of the neurological tides in mm -hmm. um, the inquiry into the essential nature of reality, the essential nature of phenomena, which is far beyond brain and far beyond world that brain 
interfaces with. Hmm. I mean, what, what defines experience in the conventional sense is this dualistic dichotomy between that which knows, that would be brain, and yeah. that which is known, which we think of as an objective world. And this assumption that these two elements actually exist and actually exist apart from each other, meaning my subjectivity and the objectivity that surrounds me, conventionally, these precepts are not even questioned. Mysticism starts at that question. And I really don't feel that psychedelia is interested in that question. It seems that psychedelia, for the most part, is interested in the subtle interface of experience as the two bleed together, but still in a brain-based chemical Mm. Um, so it's some maybe in in the vulgar sense it's some kind of entertainment that people are after um whereas mysticism has a deeper and more profound aim to it than than just experience or whereas many of the maybe many of the surrealists had had this had this desire to understand something deeper but they just were not lucky enough to have run into the mystical path in order to be able, they, they maybe had a shamanistic nature, but the culture around was not supporting their endeavors or? Well, with the Surrealists, I think you'd have to take that on a case by case basis, but within the contemporary uh, psychonaut psychedelia community, I think that it's a matter of, um, like you said, a passive uh, recipient role to phenomena rather than an attempt to discipline and cultivate a realization which one has to struggle against um, habit patterns. I don't see a lot of discipline and struggle where psychedelics are involved. It seems extremely passive. You are the passive recipient of an experience, which is not to say that that can't be valuable but it might be valuable at a fairly early age, just a handful of times. You know, mm -hmm. what I did in my youth <clears throat> was a little bit of that, but a whole lot of the gross excesses of that direction, where it became not only a kind of entertainment, but an alternate reality where I became locked into a certain set of sensations that were strangely comforting, you know, but there's only a certain amount of time that the spinning vortex of melting walls can <laughs> light you up, you know, at a certain point, it becomes conventional, uh -huh. you know, like you take psychedelics enough, the psychedelic state itself becomes the ordinary state. And what's wow. the point of that? Mm -hmm. But also, doesn't it sometimes lead you to the crisis that you need to maybe to to get more serious? If I look at my psychedelic experience, I, I think it really fucked me up, and then and then I and then I wanted to do a lot of meditation afterwards just to just to straighten out my perceptual world. Um, well, I think it's a matter of how many times that actually works out versus how many times people think that they're pursuing a direction and never actually end up following through, you know. Uh, otherwise, the streets of the Lower East Side and, you know, many other cities would be replete with authentic mystical seekers, and they're not. 
They're replete uh, with people who just sort of meander about and are rather self-indulgent about their interests and end up doing a whole lot of nothing. Okay, well, tell me a little bit about your 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 beginnings in the art art world and, and you know what what that was for you. Well, there's really not much to be said there. I wanted to be an artist like everybody else during the 80s and, uh, you know, had a bunch of shows and, you know, so what? I made a bunch of works and uh, eventually. Maybe the interesting thing is why you stopped doing that or, or and, and went elsewhere or. Well, I, I got clean from drugs in 1990. Mm-hmm. And in 1990, having been an artist and a uh, drug taker and, you know, blah, 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 all that ordinary stuff, I was faced with the crisis of my own mortality, having had a heart attack and, uh, oh. you know, a couple other health related things. And I went full blast into the Western esoteric tradition, specifically Hermetic Kabbalah. The Hermetic Kabbalah that supports um, modern occultism, the type of emanationist systems that we see in ceremonial magic and uh, what the large teaching orders were putting forth golden post-Golden Dawn style. And I pursued that as much as I could throughout the early 90s and eventually uh, found that what I was really looking for didn't seem to be there in those disciplines. And at that point, had to make a decision as to what to do with the rest of my life and eventually turn to the sources for those systems, the sources for, for example, alchemy and Kabbalah and Hermeticism due to um, Renaissance and pre-Renaissance and even ancient um, predecessors to those lines of inquiry. And pursuing those sources, I quickly dumped the the 19th and early 20th century um, um, uh, what we could call the the distant echoes of what those lines of inquiry were, mm-hmm. which uh, seemed to have missed pieces and become diluted quite a bit. So by the mid 1990s. I was only looking at sources and doing research in those sources with a system of other influences, we could say. And I stopped making art entirely in 1996 and didn't make any art or basically do anything else until 2006. So that 10-year period was really my training where I met a teacher of tantric alchemy, who you know quite well. Yeah, I have a little picture of him on the wall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that guy uh, that, in the American fellow. Midwest. And mm-hmm. due to his guidance, he, he guided me to pick up a lot of the pieces of the elements that I had been previously interested in, but in new ways. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, he, um, I was living in his hermitage in Michigan. And um, due to his influence, he made sure that I got trained properly, which involved um, studying with black hat Jews, uh, Hasidic Jews for quite Mm -hmm. a long stretch of time, many years, very intensively. 
Well, this is what I find uh, incredible about about your work uh, is that is that is that you've taken the Zochen view uh, and and you've put it in in Western in Western terms. You're taking it out of the Buddhist language, and and also created this entire I don't know world of of, of language which which expresses that. Um, and it's also amazing that that a, that a Vajrayana teacher would push you towards a. A Siddic teacher that that doesn't seem to that I've never heard of that happening much. I mean, usually when people study Vajrayana, they study Vajrayana. When people study Hasidism, they right. It's like, um, well, the thing of it is that what you're calling the uh, the Dzogchen or the Ati view, once you take out all of the cultural trappings and quite a bit of uh, surrounding methodologies in that system. The basis of it is not really a whole lot different from the highest views in many mystical systems. You see it in uh, the Kashmiri Shaivite tradition. You see it in the Nath lineage, and Hindu tantric lineage. You see it in um, certain forms of Christian mysticism, and you see it in Hasidus, the Hasidic lineage of Orthodox Judaism in certain lines, specifically due to the teachings of certain realizers. One in particular that was incredibly important for me was Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. Right. And when you read Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, not all of it, but some of it, with a certain kind of mentality, you see a view that is very much identical to the lines that I just mentioned and certainly shares a lot of the pure view of Dzogchen. Right. And so, maybe the same as if you read Meister Eckhart or if you yeah. read the great Sufi masters, um, you, you get the same view. So, so the, the, you know, then, then the techniques of, of the path are just psychotechnologies are just, they're not, they're not the point, um, but they're the, the, the vehicle, right? Am I getting that right? Well, first of all, um, you can come to these conclusions and understand them intellectually really quite well and still do nothing about them mm -hmm. in terms of doing nothing about realizing them. Once you become serious about actually practicing and, and pursuing the realization of these things, it's more than just an intellectual understanding. Unfortunately, this line gets horribly blurred all the time when people mistake a, a rather profound and even subtle intellectual understanding of these precepts with realization itself. And mm -hmm. I don't think that there are a lot of people who understand that realization is actually something that is possible and has to be pursued by direct contact with another realizer, right? If you're interested in pursuing realization in the classic ancient fashion, you have to find a realizer verifying who and what they are and what they're doing is the great challenge of all these people who've hopped on board the, the, the new age train of being interested in these subjects, you know, because obviously not everybody who makes a claim of realization is a true realizer and not everybody who even is a realizer has realization in the complete sense that could have partial realization or realization of certain aspects of the system and not others. Mm -hmm. they, there could be authentic aspects mixed in with other things. And there could be a confusion between 
precepts that are still conceptualized and true non-conceptual direct aspects of wisdom that can be transmitted. So you could even get transmission imperfectly from an imperfect realizer and no one would even know. So it's a very dangerous area to get into because how could anybody make this determination? You know, Mm -hmm. far Mm -hmm. be it from me or any book or any source to tell you how to do it. It is highly unlikely that it would happen at all. But history tells us and shows us with the accounts of great realizers like uh, the lineages we just mentioned, for example, Sufi masters for sure is another great example of this, that the highest view, the sublime view is indeed possible and is uh, its potentiality is replete within the human experience. Pursuing that is a different matter. So it's, yes, an extremely rare occurrence, um, you know, but then what do the rest of us do who are, you know, hopeless practitioners? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. I have yeah. no idea. I don't, I don't have any recommendation for anybody and I don't get involved with people's personal practice. Uh-huh. You know, I put out these books that I put out and I give talks and all that. And people inevitably come to me with the question of what do I do with the next step? How do I follow through? And I will not answer that question or get involved with people on an individual level in terms of their practice, because I don't want to um, do more damage. And I'm not offering my services as a guide to people. I'm just, like I said, putting out Mm -hmm. um, a map of what I've done and people can find that useful or not. And that's the extent of my contribution. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe then, speaking from 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 your personal experience, I wonder if you would share any of your meetings with with your teachers or any, you know, um, any any big moments you had with these teachers. If they, if it wasn't too personal or too too intimate to, to share. Well, I mean, I've um, had a direct connection with the one teacher that we spoke of, Tracton Rinpoche, for 27 years. Yeah, God. And during that period, he sent me to others to study and follow through, in particular, a certain uh, uh, Breslover Hasid rabbi, who it's probably best if I don't give his name. Because in that community, association with a guy like me could be damaging. And Mm -hmm. also other uh, teachers of technical Kabbalah within the Jewish world. One guy who was a a teacher at a yeshiva. And in the Jewish world, especially where Kabbalah is concerned, there's this dichotomy between the Hasidic and the non-Hasidic aspects of what Mm -hmm. they call the Haredi world, the ultra-Orthodox world. The path of the of the Vilna Gaon and what they call the Misnagdim, the yeshiva world or the non-Hasidic world, generally takes a certain approach, uh, which tends to be far more mathematical and mm-hmm. related to the, the clear apprehension of detail. And the Hasidic approach is more devotional. Uh-huh, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. It, it's essentially a warm versus a, a cool 
style of transmission. Right, right, right. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I'm sure that other similar dichotomies exist, for example, in Sufism in various lineages. But the highest is still the highest. The sublime does not change. Right. The only thing that changes is system and variation of understanding of system. And that's relative. And the relative is just the means that we use to approach and apprehend the absolute. Right. So if we hold the absolute in an unchanging way, all of these things either reveal it or they don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were talking earlier, uh, you know, in, in our conversation before, and you're mentioning that um, what you do is, is you begin with the intellect, um, which is different than I, I think many systems. Like, for example, when I started in Zen, I would just do a lot of Zazen. Um, or if it, when I started doing uh, Vajrana, I would just do a lot of prostrations and I would jump right into the phenomenology of, of the practice. Where, whereas perhaps I might have benefited from, from really studying a lot more before I jumped into those things first. Or, or um, maybe can you, can you explain a little bit about that, about, about your intellectual approach and then moving on to more subtle levels of, of practice? Yeah, I think in a system like Zen, where the emphasis is on the naked and direct um, uh, and spontaneous immersion of experience within the mystery, uh, what we're talking about here with a conceptual preparatory period might not be relevant. But mm -hmm. in terms of Kabbalah and alchemy, and the kind of esoteric systems that I use, it's kind of mandatory as um, a preliminary basis to be able to navigate, for example, the kind of maps which are used in the various methodologies. Mm -hmm. That one needs to be armed with a certain philosophical stance that is quite complex and involves the amassing of a great amount of detail so unlike a system like Zen, once you are presented with these symbol languages, you become fluent enough in them that you could then do the practices, which are quite complex, and be able to follow very technical points that you would be lost in otherwise. The problem is that very often people don't see the dividing line between a preparatory digestion of a symbol system and the use of that symbol system. They think that they're one and the same. For example, they think that just merely a philosophical study of these symbol systems will do something to you. And maybe it will, maybe it won't, but that's not even really the point. The point is that it's a language that one needs to speak. And once you speak that language, you get teachings in that language, you ask questions in that language, that language becomes your, your guide. Your, it's really a living, it's the living through of the map that allows this mm -hmm. style of practice to work. So it would be impossible to do that if you didn't have a comprehensive intellectual understanding first of the elements that make up the map. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in reading in reading your books, they're they're uh, uh, on one hand they they could be considered highly. I mean, your your active the intellect is is extremely active. Uh, on the other hand, they're psychoactive. They're they're. I feel I feel they they take you to a a certain space, um, which which is not merely intellectual. Uh, 
That's true there, but then you have to draw the distinction between the byproducts of the system and the real goal of the system. Mm -hmm. I'd say all the visionary stuff, and like you say, psychoactive, I think that's the term you just used. Yeah. Like all of the changes in consciousness that produce um, views of the steps along the way that show you that things are not as they seem to be and are in the process of changing. All of those things are very helpful indicators that a process is going on and you can modify them and you could even use them methodologically. But the main point is the unchanging, unmoving apprehension of the absolute, which is the essence of purity. It is an open fullness that uh, has no, there are no descriptive terms or, or calibrations that we can use to reduce it to language or, or even poetic metaphor in a way that will really truly work. You know, mm. this open fullness that, that we refer to as the ground. Another word that is used for it is the word plenum. It's absolutely openness in the sense of an openness, nothingness. There is no thing there. There is no thing about reality that you could say either is or is not. But that openness, nothingness is replete with an absolute infinite fullness, fullness of possibility that allows for a spectrum of possibilizing vectors, which has no end. So we throw ourselves into the mystery of, of this ground, this plenum, which does not change because it, how can absolute possibility change? Either it is absolute possibility or it is just a set of possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. The spontaneous expression of this fullness is what is generally referred to as the divine. So we adhere to the divine, we fall into the divine and merge and join with the divine out of our love for it. Hmm. And either love of the divine outshines all lesser concerns, or it doesn't. And if you find yourself, <clears throat> hopefully, and hopelessly, more in love with the divine than with any other aspect of the panoply of issues in your life, then you can become a practitioner. And the devotion is the capacity to join with the spontaneity of that expression of that fullness so that every detail becomes an aspect of it. In the wake of that, or short of that, we take sidetracks into the lesser concerns and become involved with them. And this is what prevents the follow-through. If we have other interests, if our life becomes fragmented between different agendas, and I'm not saying that one has to be only doing one thing, it's possible to do anything and everything. But the question is, what is the meaning of a life? Mm -hmm. If Why are, meaning, what are we doing it for? Or, right. or, or who are we doing it for? Well, maybe who is the wrong 
Yeah, that would be a, a theistic. That assumption. would be a theistic view. Well, this is we a, talk a question about actually I, I want to ask you because I know a lot of philosophers, Hegelian, Lacanian, <laughs> you know, really guys that are, and people who are, my friend Alexander Bard is, considers himself a monist. Um, and uh, uh, so, so, um, and then there's the theistic view and the non-theistic view. You talked about you talked about the divine, and no, normally when we talk about think about the divine, we're thinking about a the. I mean, the the ordinary view of the divine is God, and it's a, a theistic view. But this is not a theistic view, right? That's correct. I don't hold a theistic view, but then again, when we use these terms, we have to define these terms. And what I do is not philosophy. And the reason why it's not philosophy is because when you get into the realm of philosophy, you're 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 doing something with language that becomes far more important to the philosopher than what I'm doing. I'm just using language as a convenience. And the theistic argument is simply a matter of reification. You mentioned monism. Yeah. Um, if you reify the everything, even if it's an everything nothingness. Right. If you reify it as a one, the one, capital O, yeah. then that becomes your monad. Um, there are people who consider themselves monists, maybe in the sense that Plotinus used uh, similar terms, and maybe they're not reifying the one. That you have to take that on a case by case basis. But the way that I use the term. Monism is the reification of the spontaneous expression of the nothingness. So, right. so what's the difference between Plotinus's version of the monad and, and this version that you're? I, I'm not sure if I've got that. Well, the the difference is that, like I said, we have a plenum of open fullness that, in and of itself cannot be reified. It's beyond reification. It's an openness, nothingness. And that is the heart of the mystery. But the, um, the nature of that openness, nothingness, is spontaneous expression in the register that we call luminosity, the dynamism from which all things are formed both in terms of the knowing of things and the things that are known are aspects of this spontaneous expression of luminosity, which never departs from the openness, nothingness. See, this is where the monist can, in the sense that I use the term, can reify their monad. They reify the monad of light or the light of the openness, nothingness, into a one, a, a great thing that includes all other things. Mm -hmm. But the other alternative, which is far more common, uh, certainly in esoteric circles, is this idea that there is a stepping down, an emanationist uh, right. departure from the absolute in steps and stages. And the assumption is that the great mystery, which is beyond understanding, certainly beyond conceptual understanding, beyond experiential understanding, and that it steps down to emanate from itself a light 
that can then step down to become the various functions of light throughout registers and realms and worlds and steps and stages. And each one becomes reduced or diminished, another rung on the ladder, until you proceed to the very last rung, which in most emanationist systems would be physical reality. So we have certain assumptions made about this, and most of them are theistic, that mm -hmm. the absolute, which is the first cause, right? that's the god of a theistic system, right? Mm -hmm. that is always somehow distanced or set apart from the reality of its creation through this ladder of steps and stages. The best explanation I could give you for why my view is non-theistic is first of all, I don't view anything having ever departed from anything else. And then you gotta take this to the very root of all of the departures of an emanationist system, which is that first so-called departure of light or luminosity as the currency of all phenomena departing from the openness nothingness um, from the view that i practice the openness nothingness does not step down to create light from itself it doesn't step down to emanate its light therefore the view is known as a non-emanationist view the openness nothingness and the light are the same hmm. are are absolutely equal in, in the essential sense um, in every way possible, that the openness nothingness is essentially luminous and the luminosity is essentially open and is literally no thing. And from the fullness of that no thingness, the luminosity is shaped according to habit throughout various registers of apprehension. And this is a very, very different way of viewing the registers of reality than the emanationist model. Because from the emanationist model, something is derived or caused from something else. And then that continues to step down. So it's based on causality or causation. Karma or... So is, is this a view that is different from the view of karma? I was having a conversation with somebody about karma and they were saying karma and reincarnation and all that is, is just nonsense. So, you know, it's like, because, because nothing ever, you know, is, is karma an emanationist view or, or am I confusing languages here? I, I, I think that these terms can be used in very different ways. Right. And in the view that I'm speaking from, the reason why registers of reality are perceived the way that they are is due to the commonality of habit patterns that exist within that realm. For example, in the human realm, there are general and specific um, levels of experience or levels of consciousness that apprehend phenomena. And mm. on the general level, we have the guidelines of how things are universally accepted within the human realm, right? Like for example, you see the blue sky and I see the blue sky. Mm -hmm. On a general level, we share a certain pattern for blue sky, but my blue sky and your blue sky are not the same. 
So right. from the general level, we have a departure into the specific individual level where each stream is unique to the mind that apprehends it. So there's this overlapping territory between general and specific that produces the activity within the realm. Each realm has its general guidelines yeah. and then a range of specific variables within those guidelines. And it works that way, not only for the human realm, but for every realm. Now, if you want to bring this into the question of emanationist or non-emanationist, what an emanationist would say is that these patterns of habituation are stepped down from an absolute and locked into place in, mm -hmm. a, in a hierarchy, in a ladder. Yeah. What I'm saying is that there's one common ground for all of them, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it does not change. So from my point of view, which might sound suspiciously like a monist point of view, but it isn't. And I'll explain that in a minute. Yeah, that's that's the tricky thing. Right. Here. Okay. One can apprehend the divine equally. You get an equal opportunity to apprehend the divine no matter what realm or what variables are presenting themselves. Right. If you're now, in hell or if you're in heaven or if you're in the human realm or wherever you are, whatever level you're at, it, the divine is still present. That's right. And this yeah. is this is like one of the basic tenets of Hasidism. Mm -hmm. So if you reify that ground into a monad, a cohesive one, you become a monist. Mm -hmm. That's okay. the way that I use the term. Your friend might use the term in a very different way. There's many ways to use the term. If you reify the everything, generally by calling it God, yeah. and become a monist, you have frozen the absolute into a comprehensive universal construct. Mm -hmm. Once you go past that into the essence of the ground, which like I said, is an openness, nothingness, there is no construct possible, not even a giant comprehensive one that includes everything else. So it's simply a matter of going beyond unity, going beyond the unitive state. Even if you realize the unitive state, ultimately the unitive state has to disappear into infinity in the highest form of mysticism. So the unitive state is a, a sort of a last illusion or a, or a final, final the, the final barrier or something like that. That's right. And that's in the Kabbalistic system where we view the, um, the uh, pattern of, of creative expression as 10 spherot, that unitive state would correspond with the Keter, the highest, the crown of the system, mm -hmm. where reification is either made and then passed to every level or unmade. So in a sense, you could say that that highest point where the unitive state is reconciled is the very beginning of mysticism. And mysticism isn't even possible up until that point, because up until that point, you're just dealing with the flux and flow of, of relative phenomena. I think you're giving me an insight as, as to why it's almost impossible to talk about mysticism. <laughs> I mean, of course, from my perspective, but uh, with these guys who are philosophers, uh, it, it seems like there's, it's, 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 it's awkward to, to, to begin to talk about it on some level. Um, well, once real immersion into this continuum that, that I call the ground, where 
like I said, the spontaneous expression of the fullness, the luminous fullness of the mystery, the openness, nothingness, so much so that they are not separate from each other and one doesn't step down from the other, right? Once immersion into the luminosity of openness, which is itself open, I want that point to be clear. Once one starts to really fall in love with that as a direction, um, there is a, a, a free fall, literally a falling into where you lose everything. You lose everything and you lose one of the things that you lose that is most essential to the human experience is language, hmm. right? The, the conceptual designation of meaning according to an equivalent system. Hmm. So if you lose your faith in um, getting your bearings through language, the next step is losing your connection to perceptual or cognitive patterns as a way of getting your bearings. And once mm. you lose that and the brain's systems of orientation can no longer be relied upon as definitive, I mean, it doesn't mean that they go away because they still work provisionally, but once they go away as, as, as definitive guidelines, as they mm -hmm. are for most human beings, you're operating on a totally different standard. And at that point, the provisional nature of phenomena becomes extremely tenuous, uh, tenuous in the sense of dreamlike, uh, transparent, open, uh, mm -hmm. permeable, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other thing uh, about that permeability or that transparency is that language starts to become transparent and permeable, so much so that all constructs that the mind forms, and language is really at the center of that activity of linguistic and semiotic designation, once transparency seeps through and undermines the solidity of those systems, you are literally no longer able to differentiate being awake and being asleep. And that, yeah, that, that's something that, that's a real change. Because once you've fallen into this new standard of operation past the point of the, the general laws of the human realm, it doesn't mean that you've exited. You're still walking around talking to people. But once you've at least tasted this falling into bright nothingness, constructs appear in transparency, but you don't take them really quite so seriously anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a feeling you were leading up to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It's not you such know, a I big mean, fucking deal. <laughs> well, for a for an ordinary person where all you have to go on are the conceptual designations of both your own mind and the general realm in which you live, you have no choice but to take those things very seriously. You have no other option unless you're mentally ill, mm -hmm. you know, and this is the point where the trajectory of practice starts to look a lot like mental illness for a good long time. Yeah. Yeah.
which is another thing that we could talk about. Now, when people, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, when people say, oh, well, I've had this experience with psychedelics, everything that you're saying yeah. has borne out through psychedelics, I would not deny that one thing that psychedelics do, which is very interesting, is activate the parts of the brain that apprehends that which is beyond brain activity. So it's right. possible to get- It sort of shuts down the left hemisphere so you have access to everything or something like that. Or Well, I don't know about that, but it's possible to get passive tastes of what I'm talking okay. about okay. in psychedelics. But there is a universe of difference between getting little passive tastes of that, which you're not in control of, and disciplining your mind to go to this place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, regularly yeah. Um, in a way that, well, the, the analogy that I always use is like, there's a difference between walking into a theater and watching a movie and being the writer and director and star of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, that merely passive tastes of it, first of all, are fleeting and temporary, right? And practice in this area is increasingly not temporary, mm -hmm. meaning the changes that happen that come through discipline are generally changing the processing system itself. You know, like I said, they're changing the standard upon which constructs assert meaning, mm. right? And once those changes are made to the exclusion of all other possibilities or interests, the default setting changes. And it's mm -hmm. not an aberration anymore. It's the new normal. Mm -hmm. And what happens in mystical practice is that you keep moving that bar um, and the standard basis passes beyond general realm characteristics into wherever, you know, it really has to do with what you're practicing and, and who you're practicing with where that. So this go. whole hierarchical construct of reality that people navigate in disappear, dissolves and becomes something else. Well, like I said before, there are byproducts along the way that assert themselves. So if you hold a view based on the absolute or based on the ground, based on the divine, if you want to use that word, in a non-emanationist, non-monistic, non-theistic way, you will definitely enter territories constantly that assert themselves and have to be contended with. So it's not like everything disappears. Phenomena mm -hmm. never disappears. Phenomena is always phenomena. The question is, what is its meaning? Along the way, you don't know until realization is stabilized, you don't know the nature of phenomena. You have tastes or apprehensions of it to various degrees that you cultivate. But if you're working in a, a, a true lineage that has teaching methodologies that have been proven to work correctly for a very long time that you could rely upon, you end up in a lot of strange territories. Yeah, which you, you mentioned mental mental illness and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, 
how, how would that happen to you when you're doing this practice and, and how do you avoid that? How do you, how do you stay sane when you're going, when this is, when all these things are falling apart around you or um, all your filters and modes of reality are dissolving? And I think it's more a matter of not caring whether you remain sane or not mm-hmm. and be willing to take the risk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a risk. I mean, uh, remain, first of all, the true disasters of mysticism are an unknown, meaning, is it possible to be what is, by conventional standards, mentally ill as a practitioner, and still be a viable practitioner? Well, that's between you and your teacher, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And really, that's the only standard that matters. If you are, uh, uh, by conventional standards, a psychotic, but your teacher is telling you that you're doing great, then I would stick with it. Mm -hmm. Because the lesser concerns of how behaviors and interpretations of reality are processed amongst, for example, the mental health community, they are not really a concern. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And there are lineages which head directly for the bullseye of this target. And well, crazy, crazy wisdom is the usual term that people use or. Well, crazy wisdom generally in America, at least, is just a euphemism for excusing bad behavior. (laughs) I thought you were. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm, You know, but but I'm talking about the true extreme non-dual lineages. Um, like, for example, uh, the Agoris in India. Yeah. You know, uh, who many of them, certainly by most standards, would be called some, some crazy people. Yeah, drinking mercury and engaging in orgies and doing all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. Well, but you know, I mean, Tractor Limpache drinks mercury. <laughs> so, yeah. It does, hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. that's if it if it wasn't for tracting Rinpoche drinking mercury, I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Because it was that that very act that caused me to um, make my own work. Can, that's can another you, story. Can you explain that? Or or, or no, not? I can't explain I it. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's very interesting, but I, I probably shouldn't have said it at all, as a matter of fact. But the thing of it is that. Um, in my own development, I was headed for a whole lot of nothing, even after many years of study and practice. Just because you're devoting your life to one of these disciplines doesn't mean you're going to get anywhere. Yeah. Right. So here I was, a sort of lukewarm practitioner functioning in this lineage, and something really radical needed to be done. And what was done without going into a whole lot of private details is Tractung Rinpoche um, blew my mind with some incomprehensible and dangerous activities such as the drinking of mercury. And it caused me to go away running and screaming back to Brooklyn. And the reaction, because a true teacher really has a pinpoint accuracy as to the understanding of their students variables at any given moment and he knew that at that particular juncture what seems like crazy damaging behavior would push me to 
have a reaction. And the reaction on my part that he calculated was ultimately what turned into the writing and drawing of my esoteric cartography. And that's mm -hmm. when it started. Like you could say that as an esoteric cartographer doing the kind of work that I do, it was kicked off by this insane act of him drinking the mercury. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And that happened in 2006, I mm -hmm. believe, in the summer at Sogilgar. And immediately upon going back to Brooklyn, I wrote my first book. And after I wrote my first book, began to make diagrams of the mm -hmm. material. Yeah. Um, the uh, Kabbalistic Mirror of Genesis. Yeah, that's the book. Fantastic I mean, book. I, I, I read it and I, it's, I read it over and over or little bits of it. Well, the thing was that after this, this cataclysmic event, which was extremely painful, mm -hmm. um, my reaction was to wake up in the morning and watch my wife go off to work because she had a job in the corporate world at the time. And I would sit at a desk and write until she came home every day. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, that's Kabbalistic mirror. That's how it was written. It was a direct reaction to trying to get my mind back after it had been blown apart by the extreme bizarre activity that was thrust upon me with the mercury. And there's a lot of details I'm not going to go into about the mercury and mm -hmm. why it was mercury and uh, what the surrounding events were, but it was crazy and it, it was dangerous and, uh, you know, well, yeah, you know, Vajrayana Tantra is, is the, there's many warnings labels on, on the bottle. It's, it's, it's a dangerous activity and they're always saying you shouldn't partake in it unless you're serious. And um, Well, it's the same with um, a lot of the, the things that appeal to people who have fixations in what they think of as the dark aesthetics of, of what, they, what they think are the left-hand path. And especially mm -hmm, mm -hmm. surrounding um, activities and practices having to do with tantric protectors. You know, the reality of it is that if even the shadow of one of these protectors would, would come anywhere close to you, the experience would be so overwhelmingly unpleasant and negative that you would quickly realize that your fixations are pure fantasy Mm -hmm. and not there's a lot of fantasy i guess there's just so much potential for fantasy and all this well yeah. if somebody's talking about it in public it almost always is pure fantasy because the reality of it is so far different than what is commonly discussed when it comes to for example uh protector magic and um uh, mm -hmm practices of that sort like the the real thing the difference between the real thing and what is put forth as the tradition commonly amongst the world of people the disparity is just it's a crazy disparity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay i want to hear from from the moment you wrote this this book uh you know what happened next to you because you you consider yourself uh you know in in hermitage in, in you know you're always on retreat full time and that's what you do. And, and it's a, a total dedication, right? So, so what happened after you wrote that book? And, and where did you go from there? 
you know, I didn't, I really didn't expect to, to talk about the incident with the mercury, but I, I said it, so I might as well use that as the starting point because it kind of was, you know, but if you think about it, I had been devoting my life to study and practice of esoteric discipline since 96, you know, stopped everything to do since 96. And that took place in 2006. So I had 10 years of preparation for that. Mm-hmm. So 2006, I come back to Brooklyn, I write Kabbalistic Mirror, and I realized that all of the preparation that I had done, all of the notes that I had taken, and the, I basically had begun diagramming in notebook form for those 10 years, mostly in terms of two basic texts as a guideline. One of them was the first three chapters of the book of Genesis of the Bible that that Kabbalistic Mirror is based off of. But the other one, which is far and away more important for me, is a very obscure 13th century Kabbalistic text called the Fountain of Wisdom, which is almost incomprehensible. You can't just read it. It's meant to be the basis for an oral tradition of interpretation. So I had been using this since a certain um, teacher of Kabbalah introduced me to it in the late 90s. So for 10 years, I had been making notes on Genesis and Fountain of Wisdom and trying geometric solutions to try to take them apart, but I hadn't made real diagrams. They were notes. It was preparatory material. So once I wrote Kabbalistic Mirror, I realized that what I had done is cracked my own notes and made a cohesive, I I basically understood what I was looking for for those 10 years. But all the details methodologically to express it were there. So I revisited the symbol languages that I had been exploring and found that I could now put the pieces together. So my first reaction after writing that book was to start to map it out visually, graphically. And I began to make diagrams. In 2007, I started making diagrams as a major component of my practice. So writing and making diagrams from the end of 2006 or we could say 2007 through about 2010 was just all that I did with my time. You know, I devoted myself, but the, and this was a huge departure from the 10 year preparatory period where I was just assembling the vocabulary. Now I'm speaking the vocabulary. So around 2010, a good friend of mine, who's a very well-known composer and jazz musician, uh, named John Zorn. Oh, John Zorn, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Zorn and I have been friends since since forever. Oh, yeah. And he um, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how this could be put into the public, right? So he actually orchestrated a show at um, Kevin Morris Gallery of all of the material up to that point in 2010. So that was you know, three to four years of diagrams. So surrounding that show, a bunch of interesting things happened, you know, like people became interested in me and, uh, you know, I set the seeds for putting out a bunch of books of different publishers around that time. So I tried it 
I tried answering to the context of a gallery show and publishers and whatnot. And I found mm. that it, it didn't work for the way that I wanted to live, the way I wanted to continue the exploration. So after about a year, probably 2011, I, I slammed the door shut and left the culture is the way I put it, meaning I don't want to have a relationship with the culture anymore. I don't want to have shows in galleries. I don't want to, I mean, doing interviews with people like, you know, this is fine. It's not that intrusive, but putting my stuff in the New York art world, uh-uh, that's not going to work. Hmm. So that was my very last show was 2010. Around 2011, I realized either I'm going to be a retreatant or I'm going to be stuck in this public expression of a private thing for the rest of my life, which does not work. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. So in becoming a retreatant, I realized that I had to do years of formal retreat. Mm -hmm. And that's when the direction became solidified because now I have a working vocabulary. Yeah. Right. I had 10 years of preparation for the elements of symbol systems. Then I began to use those symbol systems in a, a cohesive way that actually spoke a language and could articulate what I wanted to articulate using this arcane symbol set. I put it, I dangled it into the public for, for two seconds, saw the error of that, and then ran in the opposite direction and started a life of formal retreat, which involved uh, the generosity of my wife, who chose to take care of me as a retreatant. And for the period of formal retreat, she moved out of the house to allow me to, she got an apartment down the street wow. and, and took care of me, cooked for me and uh, you know, took care of all of my needs. So I didn't have to have any responsibilities or concerns. And basically kept up her job and took care of me in retreat. And I sat in the empty apartment for several years and did various types of formal retreat. Yeah. So my formal retreat years went up till uh, 2015. Yeah. In That's that interesting. I, 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 your formal retreat started in, in 2010, you said? or No, it started around 2011. Or, 2011, or, okay. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah, something like that, 2012. Because okay. I spent a year wasting time in the new york art world uh -huh, i see yeah i remember you talking about um the fact that that you were in retreat in brooklyn you know in a, on a busy street you know and that it didn't matter whether you go on retreat um it doesn't matter if you go on retreat in downtown new york or if, if you're in a mountain in the himalayas it it makes zero difference yeah, there's this fantasy that exists in the popular imagination of going off to the cave or the mountaintop yeah. as if that's going to solve all your problems for you, which of course would never work because you're going to take your problems into the cave and then you're going to go be a mess in the cave. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the thing of it is that retreat, which is really very misunderstood, is 100% mental. You could do it anywhere if you had the right mentality. Right. So yeah, I was in the So you wouldn't even have had to have left with your wife if you had the right mentality and you wouldn't have had to have be in separate apartments. I mean, could you have done it 
with other people around or would you have to no, be alone? No, I, um, I that mean, that's just is, you, but. That's a different issue because there are certain logistical issues about technique. For example, the need for absolute silence and lack of activity in the same room with you. Mm -hmm. Like outside my window, I lived on old Fulton street in Brooklyn, across from the Brooklyn bridge on the other side of the street was the Brooklyn bridge. So I was right on the water city skyline. This is a place where tourists go. Yeah. And they go to eat pizza and walk around and the tour buses come in and there's yelling and screaming and um, uh, uh, all kinds of fights and things and bars across the street 24 hours a day. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was extremely loud and disruptive, plus construction constantly on the bridge and whatnot. So it was not quiet, but there's a difference between that and the room that I'm sitting in. If there's another person in the room, I am not strong enough to practice through that. So that's uh -huh. my limitation. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Right. So mm -hmm. my wife had to move out so that I could at least do the, the actual practices that I needed to do and blot out the whole of everything else. That's It's going to be different for each person, but that was my dividing line. And my my years of formal retreat were not entirely pleasant. They were painful. It was not a peaceful thing. Like that's the other fantasy that goes on in the popular imagination is that my life is so chaotic. I'm just going to run away to the cave or the mountaintop and all my problems will just go away. I mean, I'm yeah. laughing because the opposite would happen if you right. did that. You, it would amplify Everything, the, crazy, right? yeah. the craziness of your own head mm -hmm. would be so off the map that you'd run back to the big city apartment that you came from. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't walk, you would run, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. after just a little bit of facing of your own, the state of your own affairs. Yeah, I have a small experience of that. I was in a monastery for a year and I, I went and visited bananas while I was there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, with, with good reason. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, how else are you going to find out? How else are you going to find out? Yeah. You know, so I sat in this apartment, I sat in this room and went through the, the, the burning through of a lot of real obscurations and obstructions that were inherent in the habit field of my own mind, uh, which was painful, which was painful. And, and um, now I also must mention this, during the period between 2006 and this retreat period, I had left the Tractor Rinpoche's lineage officially, mm -hmm. like cursing them. Like, like left in an unpleasant way, but he, he knew it the whole time. And we were like secretly in communication. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. at a certain point, he comes to New York. He flew to New York to sit in the room with me and tell me what had just happened. And until he flew and sat in my room in Brooklyn, I still thought Tractor Rinpoche is crazy. He drank mercury. You know, he, he's out of control. <laughs> like, I had no idea that this was like a planned event to get me to do all this stuff. So once I heard from him sitting in my 
living room that he and the other realized members of that lineage had actually orchestrated this. And it's kind of time for me to come home now. <laughs> okay. You know, um, and then he left the next day. Like he came to New York to say that in person and then went back home. So that's unusual. And then I started my um, regular life of uh, frequent visits to the Gar, the Hermitage. And um, I have a little hut there and I, you know, have a place to stay on the property in a hut. And for the following years, I was going out there all the time. And um, recently, I, I've just been doing such intensive work here that I didn't go out there for one year. You know, I just came back, actually. Right. But during that year, I wrote a few books and did a lot of did a lot of diagramming. Mm -hmm. So you had this intensive retreat for three or so, something years, and now your life right now is is you you would consider it always to be in retreat, but it's it's not as, as strict a, a well. It's like what kind of strict boundaries are you are you working with? Well, this is another thing that people don't understand about retreatants. Like the boundaries are always changing according to what you're doing, what the needs are, and what you're asked to do. Mm -hmm. There's many, many different types of boundary structures from uh, absolute formal boundaries yeah. to permeable boundaries to boundaries that are selective. You know, closed boundary formal retreat is what everybody thinks of with retreat. And that's yeah. a thing for certain people. But there's also flexible boundaries, too. And I've explored all of it. I've done formal closed boundary. I've done selective boundary down to like micro level of adjustments. Mm -hmm. And basically, I'm not the boss. The work is the boss. And I will do whatever it takes to do the work. A work, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you've been... Oh, go, go ahead. No, I'm not going to say anything. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that um, when you speak about your work, you, you, it's it's your, your, you know, your practice that you're sharing with, with, with people, but... Um, and you don't care how that how they respond necessarily or or is is that is that true is it is it is it just that you're putting it out there and and like like or or, or do you have any concerns whatsoever about how you know what people will make of your work or oh sure i i care that it benefits people i want it to benefit people i care it's not like i don't care but i'm not doing it for them and i'm not doing it for me mm-hmm mm -hmm. You know, right. and pe people, when, when they hear that you get accused of saying that you don't care if people like it or not, and I'm saying I do, I want it to benefit people. Yeah. But when the sentiment circulates that maybe your relationship to caring is slightly different, the response is always, oh, well, then you're doing it for yourself. Hell no, I'm not right. doing it for myself. All right. All right. Uh -huh. So I'm not uh -huh. doing it for you. I'm not doing it for me. Uh -huh, Listen, uh -huh. if I was doing it for me, I'd be in way worse trouble than if I was doing it for you. <laughs> right. No, I'm doing it right. for the divine. It's, you know, 
I mean, it should, there should be no lack of clarity about that. If you're a practitioner and this comes first and your own concerns are uh, put into the perspective of this greater direction, you're doing it for the divine. It is divine service. It is a divine practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I did it for myself, I'd be just like those half-assed surrealists that I was so obsessed with as a teenager. And then I would just be, you know, another careerist artist or writer making their personal statement. See, I'm not doing personal expression. Yeah. There's no, there's no yeah you told me expression. that a long time ago. You said that the difference between your early artwork and what you're doing now is it has nothing to do with personal expression. And I thought I thought about that a lot. Uh, yeah, I'm not interested in my mind's reactions to things. They're not interesting to me. My mind feeling this way or feeling that way or coming up with a conclusion emotionally or even poetically, it's just not interesting to me. No, I'm only interested in the pursuit of, of the subliming aspect of my path and the byproducts that are kicked up by that pursuit can be codified and mapped and the territories that I enter can also be mapped. And that generates a great deal of sensation. But that is not the same as personal expression. Personal expression mm -hmm. is an accounting of your reaction or an exploring of an open-ended set of reactions mm -hmm. of you mm -hmm. as an individual. Yeah. And if the whole purpose of what I'm doing is the opposite of reifying the sense of my identity as an individual. Yeah, that's the kind of the point of what I'm doing here. Personal expression would be the exact opposite of that. So I don't consider myself an artist in the contemporary sense whatsoever. Yeah. But and even I, I wonder, I mean, you're very clear about that. But I even an artist who is maybe not that clear about that, probably if he ever expresses anything true, it's, it's not really coming from personal expression. Well, that would be you know, uh, uh, an area that they would have to um, examine on their own. Now, all I can do is serve my practice. And as a result of um, going in this direction, I do as much work as possible. And I don't really think about it much. Mm -hmm. I don't really, I don't really think about these issues. I'm not interested in contemporary art. Yeah, I'm not interested in the culture. I'm not interested in the elements of the culture that surround what seems to be these issues, such as philosophy, politics, the zeitgeist, all of those things. I do not care. I do not care who is president. I do not care <laughs> what's going on in my neighbor's backyard, unless it annoys me and prevents me from doing my work. So... So I, I boycott these concerns as mm -hmm. uh, superfluous. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's like if I'm sitting here trying to do something and a fly lands on my arm and it bothers me, I'll brush it away. But it's not like I will agonize over having done that. <laughs> <laughs> I will get back to work and forget about the fly. <laughs> That's great. You know. Um, well, maybe maybe we could talk a little bit about your books. And and I, I have one of your books here, the 32 ah. uh, 
keys that I've I've I'm on key number 22. I've been working through them. Uh, yeah, I haven't listened to all the I haven't listened to all the videos yet uh, because I yeah I haven't been able to afford to pay for it but I will when I when I have the money <laughs> and uh, I I think I think it's really an amazing system to work through as people who like to meditate might benefit for, from this. Uh, I mean, well, that that one was really um, very much um, encouraged by Tracting Rinpoche because I I made those cards. Um, which are diagrams of the aspects of the path comprehensively. And when you mm -hmm. put them all together, you get four rows of eight. Yeah. And I laid them out for Tracting Rinpoche, and he said, okay, that's good, viable overview of the path. What are you going to do with it? I thought, well, write commentary on it, explain how what I meant, and make it a set of cards that go with the book. And it was far and away the most successful book that I've done on my own. And it is now out of print. We're probably going to do a second printing. Yeah. And why and is that? I think it's because you can work with it directly, right? I mean, your other books work on you when you read them. Um, they definitely have an effect, but this one has a methodology, whereas uh, the other ones don't necessarily have that, right? Yeah. And it's an attempt to sort of gather it comprehensively into one place to get an overview and you know the bird's eye view where you could work each section on its own terms and still have that section set within a very clear map of the total territory it's a very appealing way to get one's bearings in the system yeah. the problem is that i am constantly pushing the bar the boundaries so every time I do a book, by the time that book is made available, I'm not thinking about that book anymore. I'm thinking about the next book. Mm. So, you know, I, I kind of had this hesitancy to put out the second edition because I read it and I go, oh my God, I could... Uh, I you could mean what, so we wanted to have to rewrite it again in a different way or something like that? Yeah, I could do that. Or, but or that edit it or... Well, if I did that, it would be at the expense of the next project. I would be taking uh -huh, energy uh -huh. and focus away from the next thing. And I'm always working on the next thing. So if you're always working on the next thing, revising an old thing is like, oh, yeah, you really don't want to do it. So mm -hmm. I'll probably just put it out as is. But the thing of it is that it, it um, seems to help people very directly in the sense of being comprehensive and um, sight specific. So I did these teachings, one on each of the 32 keys, on Zoom, with a group, with Q&A. Um, my wife, Rachel, and somebody who works with us took um, elements of the, um, of the cards and made uh, animated graphics in the videos to a certain extent, you know, a lot or a little. And we put them out as a set. Mm. Right. And now they're available online for a nominal fee. And um, yeah, people seem to really like them. Um, my next book, uh, which will be called Black Ether, mm -hmm. is uh, a very unusual book. 
it's the first book that I've done. Oh, you're naming right. it now. The last interview, I heard you say you had you weren't going to give you weren't going to share the name, but the name well, is it's in is, production now. So it's the name like, is out there. Okay, the name Black Ether. So it's 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 the thirty two keys, then it's the Fountain of Wisdom, and now it's it's Black Ether. Well, or there was I'm another missing, one. Actually, I'm missing. I'm missing one in there. Okay, Quintessence of Secret Mercury. Right. Right. Yeah, okay. Quintessence of Secret Mercury is a book that I put out at the same time as I put out The Fountain. I put out two books at the same time. And it's mostly images and short texts. So it's a, a good, um, concise collection for people who want to observe what it is that I do in, um, in, in a sort of creative sense. Like it probably has way more images that I'm than most books do. And the texts are sort of um, poetic expressions and relatively short. So it's easy to look through and digest mm -hmm. for those who might not have the wherewithal to really want to pursue the system like 32 Keys is pretty intensive study. Quintessence of Secret Mercury is like a, a lot of nice tastes. But one thing that's in that book that relates to our conversation is I did a string of notes uh, during my years of formal retreat. And I ended up calling that notebook text, the quintessence of secret mercury. And I put it out in its entirety there. And the weird thing about that retreat text that I wrote is it had the seeds of all of this stuff that I would elaborate later and into an entire system. But at the time that I wrote it, I was barely aware of what I was writing. Mm -hmm. uh. And I wrote it down, I put it in the notebook. It's, it sounded good and I sort of got the point, but I don't think that I really understood. So it was it. kind of like an acorn that grew into a big tree or something like that. Uh. Yeah, and then I revised it, cleaned it up a little bit and I put it out and named the book after it. So that came out at the same time that Fountain of Wisdom came out. Plus, it has a lot of images in it. It's got a lot of visual, a lot of visuals. And after that, which was less than a year ago, um, this real shift happened where the material that I had digested from Fountain of Wisdom, Fountain of Wisdom is a very odd text. There are things that mark the Kabbalistic system for people. The, um, the worlds, the levels of the soul, the spherot of the tree of life, mm -hmm. right? The Fountain of Wisdom is a Kabbalistic text that doesn't use any of that vocabulary. There are no spherot, there are no worlds, there are no levels of the soul. Everything that marks Kabbalah in people's minds is absent from the text is very, very weird. What it has are psychoetheric suggestions, atmospheres, mm -hmm. atmospheres of phenomena on the very subtle level. Yeah. And is that the same thing as rasas, the, the, the rasa? Well, I interpret many of the psychoetheric atmospheres as rasas, but mm -hmm. some of them are different than rasas because rasas are feeling tone resonances that are pitched to very specific qualities 
like a specific rasa will be a specific quality. Some of the sensations in Fountain of Wisdom are like that, but some of them are much more general and less specific. And some of them are just give you kind of the, the, the pretext for a rasa, right? Like the, the space in which rasas could appear. So it's much more sort of, the spectrum is much wider. It's not just merely an accounting of rasas. Rasas are one phenomena of tastes that occur in different registers. The Fountain of Wisdom is giving you this wild spectrum of places where all kinds of phenomena can arise. And as a result of digesting this and spending just enormous amounts of time um, um, functioning that way, I started to adopt this direction that the fountain of wisdom leads into and found that my own inquiry and exploration could go in this direction beyond the boundaries of the fountain of wisdom text itself. And I started revisiting quite a bit of the material that I had been working with through this new vocabulary of exploration and inquiry and found that the fountain of wisdom really was much more of a kind of a springboard into a way of working contemplatively that had never been done before. It's almost like I wanted to have this uh, methodology of inquiry, but it hadn't been invented yet. And I, I, it took the fountain of wisdom to push me into the invention of the methodology that I could then apply. The application became black ether. It's a way of engaging phenomena, the field of appearance, through the view. What do you mean by black, black ether? I, I, I'm, I'm, I've heard you say that many times, and I've been trying to absorb what you mean by that. And, and, and... Okay. Let's say that you have a perception of something. It's a mental construct. Could be internal, could be external, doesn't matter. What makes that mental construct what it appears to be is itself and the exclusion of everything that it's not, mm -hmm. right? So if the mental construct, if the thing is itself and is not anything other than itself, is not anything else, then it's kind of like a bubble. It has a barrier. It has a skin. Just like any perspective that we have is has a limitation by, by virtue of yeah. the fact that it's a perspective. Yeah. The, the line of limitation would be the skin or the shell. In mm -hmm. Kabbalah, that's called a klipa. Yeah. Right. So if conceptuality in a conceptualized universe is made entirely of these assumptions of mental constructs, which are shells or skins around designations, conceptual designations, then you could look at two parts of the skin. There's a part that faces in into itself. Right. If there's a bubble, the skin of the bubble can face into what the bubble contains. But on the other side of the skin, it faces out into infinite open expanse, right? So these two aspects of the skin 
that face in and face mm -hmm. out, which are called the front and the back or mm -hmm. the inner and outer aspect of that skin. Like the, is that the burning bush metaphor again, the front and the back of, of, of God or, or whatever? Um, yeah, because um, Moses says to God, presumably at the burning bush, who should I uh, say sent this? And he says, I am that I am. The, the punchline of the joke is, is no man can see my face and live. No man yeah. can see the front, meaning the part that faces out into infinity. The you totality only, or, or the... Yeah, you can only see from the point of containment in. You yeah. can't see from the point of containment out. Uh-huh. Right? Because a mind can't comprehend that. It takes something beyond the psyche to approach that. The psyche only knows designations, even, even in its best case scenario. So black ether is this magical point where the front and the back of the skin of a mental construct touch each other. <laughs> and at that touch point, the ground is directly asserted and the shell or the skin can be unmade. Because at that touch point, at the point of black ether, there is no one point of black ether. The, the touch point is where every touch point of every mental construct in infinite interpenetrating, overlapping, transparent, selectively, mutually non-obstructing relationships and clusters, they all share one touch point because it can't be fragmented or isolated. There is no such thing in terms of the black ether as a difference between the one and the many. That's the point where the one and the many come apart and dissolve into the ground. So if you were to realize one point of black ether in one particular shell where inner and outer touch, you realize the point of black ether inherently in everything. Mm. And there's a great deal more about this um, Kabbalistically that has to do with the concealing of divine sparks within the appearance field. Because the job of realizing the black ether, which is to unmake the shells that posit reification and division, right? If you were to successfully realize the black ether at all, you would then have the means to unmake not only one shell or group of shells or network of shells, but the very impulse of shell construction which would mean that what was concealed in those shells, which are sparks of the divine, would be spontaneously liberated. And the spontaneous liberation of divine sparks is very much the same as the realization of divine ether, because just as the divine ether can't be reduced to a one or a many, you can't fragment sparks of the divine either. How can there be sparks, plural, of the divine if there's no reification and division in the divine. It's, it's only our, our habit field that thinks that there are instances of the divine. In reality, there's only the wholeness. So when you realize the black ether as the unmaking of the shell structures of mental constructs and designations, you spontaneously liberate sparks and realize luminosity in its innate or essential sense.
Mm-hmm. And that is called gnosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So spontaneous realization, which doesn't mean stable realization. And would that make it so that you don't know the difference between dreaming and sleeping? Because is that the moment between dreaming and sleeping? Is that the black ether? Oh, or- no. I, I think that, that erasing the difference between dreaming and sleeping happens much earlier in the process. I don't even think it's that big a deal. I think uh, erasing or or selectively to some degree erasing that that hypnagogic barrier is a way more common thing than realizing black ether i think it's something that if anybody was really interested in it all they would have to do is just examine their own phenomena and depending on the degree to which they were interested they would realize that things as they appear to be are already inherently dreamlike. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Just I was more th- thinking about the boundary between sleeping and waking, like this boundary. Well, that's um, just the thing. There is no boundary between between yeah. those two states. The just perceived like boundary. The, the whole concept of the shells and the divisions between things is an illusion from the outset. So when you realize the black ether, you're not actually breaking through something. It was never there to begin with. Mm-hmm. So what you're realizing is just that, that, that the shells that constitute ordin- so-called ordinary assumptions about reality, they were never real to begin with. They were an assertion, an assertion of your perceptual habits from the outset they were always a projection of your base tendencies and the specific limitations of your habits and the general tendencies of the realm's habits and they were never anything other than that and there's no thing about them which is essentially real whatsoever so what's the difference between that and like death or so, something? Um, I, I'm jumping around. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm kind of. Well, the the realization of the black ether is presumed on a certain assumption that the beginnings and ends of phenomena are mental designations that have no reality either. So the ultimate beginning and end of phenomena is the birth and death of phenomena. And what I'm saying is that that distinction is a an assumption, a, a perceptual assumption that is conceptual. You are conceptualizing that, that something is born and something will die. That is predicated on the fact that you think that there's something there. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you in the realization of the black ether that that is not the case. There is no thing to be born and no thing to die. So the conceptuality that you're breaking through is a birthing, deathing set of conceptual assumptions that have no validity. This is generally what is termed the apophatic approach. I was just coming to that word. Uh, and you said, mentioned you said post-apophatic, right? Uh, yeah, well... Um, what did you I- mean by that? Well, when we deal with um, pure vision, what we call pure vision, which is a a view of phenomena as inherently replete with divinity, right? That becomes possible 
after the conventional habit assumptions that ordinary people carry around is exhausted or resolved, you could say. And the means by which that resolution or exhaustion of habit tendencies happens is immersion in, in what we call the apophatic bath, essentially mm -hmm. immersion in the nothingness state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But of course, immersion in the nothingness state doesn't mean that the world goes away. So the spontaneous expression- Because it's the no-thingness state, it's not, it's not a mere void. Yes, but the world doesn't go away. So there is the spontaneous assertion of phenomena that you that still has to be contended with. So depending mm -hmm. on the degree to which the apophatic immersion is, is resolved, there is a post-apophatic reassessment of the meaning of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for example, this glass to what we could call the ordinary habit field, seems to be a thing, right? It seems to be itself and nothing else. Here it is. It has substance. It occupies a place dimensionally and can even be seen in a continuum of motion, which we call the dimension of time. We could conceptualize about it and come to a conclusion that it either is or is not, right? Those five categories, substance, dimension, time, concept, and beingness, are the markers of what we call ordinary reification. That's how phenomena is reified. It's reified in that way. Something exists somewhere at some time. It's conceptualized, and the determination is made whether it is or is not. The black ether is the coming apart of all of those assumptions, but yet the phenomena persists on the other side of the, 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 the dissolution of those assumptions. We have those very same qualities asserting themselves with new meaning. Substance becomes substancelessness. Dimension becomes non-dimensionality right? Temporality becomes atemporality. Conceptuality becomes non-conceptuality. And the very root, which is being or not being, becomes something utterly incomprehensible, which that's the root of the other four. Phenomena can still be presented, but its meaning is now magical on the visionary level. And this is what we call pure view or pure vision. It's the assertion of the ground through phenomena and not in spite of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is the main alchemical transmutation that takes place where ordinary view is displaced by, or we could say consumed by, the nosemic or Gnostic vision, which is the post-apophatic assertion of divinity through infinite variation, but there is no entity or monad being asserted. It is completely open, which is why I say that my view is a non-monistic view, because the very thing that makes it work is that apophatic immersion into nothingness. That 
completely belies the uh, assumption that all things are one as a monad. You couldn't have a, an apophatic or a post-apophatic transmutation if you held the kind of monist view that I'm talking about. So when people say, um, God gave the Torah on Mount Sinai, right? The very thing that reifies the, the absolute, uh, which most people assume when they call it God, this is the very root of something that we are reassessing. Because when the voice answered Moses at the burning bush, he said, who should I say sent me? And he said, Eher, Asher, Echia, I am, or I will be that which I will be. There's a series of places you could go with that. And one of those places is, oh, you mean God is a giant ego that includes everything else. Uh, I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And if okay. that's the case, you there's your monad. <laughs> yeah, we're just calling it God now. But it's really just like what I'm doing with my own mind. Mm -hmm. So actually, the other side of God or whatever, the other side of the burning bush or is is without dimension or without can't be reified or described no or explained no or... what what i'm saying is that we're doing away with the concept of sides there's no sides anymore yeah yeah okay. yeah because if you have two sides you're doing it again you're doing it again yeah yeah but how could you not do it again in in, in when you're using language to describe these things well I mean, that's why you got to dump the language that's why you got to dump the language okay. yeah, th yeah that's why you got to mm -hmm. dump the language and dump the philosophy and dump every conceptually designating coordinate point that is used to reify phenomena wholesale get rid of it throw it in the fire the beast must be consumed but if the beast is everything the beast must consume itself mm. yeah so if there's sides, you're doing it again. And if you're doing it again, you're not going to get out of that predicament until the, the pith of the, the, the wisdom of the arrangement is made evident. And this answers one of your first questions. Why is it necessary that somebody intellectually understand these points before they're able to practice them? It's because of just that. That if you don't intellectually understand what I just said, you can't practice, at least not in the way that I'm suggesting. Yeah, well, I mean, that was kind of a, a question. It's like, okay, yes, I intellectually understand that, but that's so far removed from, I guess, what actually the actual experience that 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 could lead to a sort of conceit or 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 does lead to conceit. So that's the intellectual conceit that. Yeah, I might have because I I just understand some, some cool, you know. Well, you see this a lot in in a sort of um, new age pseudo advaita advaitaka, yeah. Pages, yeah. You know, like, hey, Jim Carrey thinks he's enlightened now. You know, <laughs> so I mean, I don't know. I'm not casting aspersions on Jim Carrey. Who the hell knows? I'm just saying that this is a tricky issue, a slippery slope. And yes, you could end up making a really bad mistake and wasting years of your life. Mm -hmm. If you, you didn't know? have if you didn't have the view calibrated and and you weren't doing the work because well, I don't know. I don't have the answer for anybody. Uh -huh. All I could do is state the the problem 
and state the question. I don't have the answer to the question. You know, so if somebody says, well, how do I avoid or how can I not do or et cetera, in terms of the mistakes that could be made, that's on you. You figure that one out. All I could do is state the question and the problem as coherently as I can, draw you a map to tell you how to get there, and the rest is on you. You know, and this is why, this is the real reason why it's considered dangerous. Not because somebody might drink some mercury or do some crazy shenanigans or whatever, whatever the fuck they want to do. The real reason why it's dangerous is because you could waste your time. You could waste your life. Oh, you said a fantastic thing uh, the other that I that I've been thinking about also a lot. Uh, you said, you said, what is the definition of evil, and that is wasting your time. Yeah, I've, I never heard that before, and I thought that's just so right. I mean, that's just so true. <laughs> you know, in my own life, when I'm involved in evil, I'm just wasting my time, right? Well, it's wrong paths. You know, lesser no. concerns. If you get if you get scooped up into lesser concerns the life force that is spent there is not redeemable. You know, it, it's gone and you need a lot of life force to practice the path. You need a lot. And the older we get, less we have. Wasting time is serious business. Wasting time is like a real, that's, um, you could blow your shot. You know, you could completely blow your shot with a misspent life. Yeah. You know, and, and what a sad thing. Then you would, then you would um, pass from the circumstance in which you find yourself into some other circumstance. And maybe that whatever it would turn into might not be conducive to practice at all. I'm talking here about death, like physical death. You know, uh, one way to look at it is here you have this circumstance with a body mind where if you're listening to me now, you could probably practice. Anybody listening to this right now could probably practice to one extent or another. Mm -hmm. Later, maybe not. Well, I know I was in the hospital recently and it was not so easy to practice <laughs> when you're in the hospital and you're. There's always light, there's always sound and color. Yeah. There's always. In, uh, there's always phenomena. As long as there's phenomena, you could practice. Yeah, right. That's a good thing to remember. Yeah. If you are in love with the divine and there is phenomena, you can practice. Hmm. If you're not, then you're not. You know, because a lot of people would like to be in love with the divine, but they also love a bunch of other stuff, you know, um, and it could be, you know. Well, you love your wife, right? I mean, and. I, I love my wife, but my wife is an expression of the divine. Right, right, right. I mean, if I, if the love I feel for my wife is. Well, you is, just, well, you're, but you're dividing other stuff from the divine. There's the divine and then there's other stuff. That would be the problem, mm -hmm. wouldn't it? Would be dividing other stuff from the divine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, reification and division is the problem. Mm -hmm. Either we're doing that or we're not doing that. Or we're doing it to one degree or another, I should say. No, I absolutely um, think love is love. And if you love your, your 
um, kids or you love your spouse, if you are expressing love, love is inherently divine by its very nature. So if you have that understanding, then you could love um, beer. <laughs> beer. And, and it's the yes. divine. <laughs> right. You know, but if you don't have that, telling yourself that the beer is the divine ain't going to work for you. Yeah. Yeah. So there's yeah. a huge difference. You're between... a pseudo tantric practitioner or something. Or... Oh, yeah. There's a, a huge difference mm -hmm. between telling yourself a bunch of lies that you know deep down are not true about yeah. the nature of reality and the real thing. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Like it's very common amongst Advaitic and Dzogchen circles f to excuse my bad behavior by saying, well, it's all the divine anyway, or it's all emptiness anyway, depending on what systems language you want to use. So therefore I can, I can act like an asshole, mm -hmm. you know, and, and essentially excuse my conventional behavior with a, a fancy esoteric uh, a con job that you're playing on other people or yourself. I mean, yourself first mm -hmm. and other people as a consequence of that. So the whole thing is uh, really, I think very, very important to get your ass kicked by somebody who sees through what you're doing. Mm, and yeah. that's a big part of what a teacher does is, you know, like Traction Rinpoche always jokes that that he's just like a fancy garbage man you know taking out the trash of people's <laughs> yeah. people's nonsense yeah. yeah and and at a certain point you know all you could say is well thank you <laughs> yeah. because if you didn't do that you know it wouldn't get done yeah you know? well, i remember the first time i met him he was like who is this andrew sweeney guy who wants to be my my, my student get away from me it was very <laughs> confrontational and and um he was being nice to everybody else, but, and, but, you know, he was really, I, I think he maybe knew that I wanted to be a student, but he was being, he was being very harsh with me and kind to everybody else. And by the end of the weekend, I, I felt like I had been like, had the shit kicked out of me or something, but yeah, when he let me do the Nundro and, and <laughs> that was the best thing ever, but there's a famous story about uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj where he was answering questions as he always did in his little cigarette shop in Bombay. And somebody asked him, well, in your system, what is um, the role of compassion? Do you deal with or express compassion in your system? Mm -hmm. And yeah. his response is, well, I'm talking to you, aren't I? Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> so, you know, if you think about that, it's really kind of mind blowing because um, if, if somebody is in a teaching role to mm -hmm. a certain extent, they're taking out the trash. They, they don't have to talk to you. Yeah. Right? So if, if that's a compassionate. Yeah. Also, I walked in the room to meet him and he walked right out. <laughs> Things like that he was doing to me like all weekend. And uh, it was beautiful. It was like, okay. I mean, I also had the sense that I was in the presence of somebody who knew what the, what they were doing, like I've never met anybody before. So <clears throat> you wouldn't take that kind of behavior from just an ordinary, you know. Well, person. he's, he's very, very patient. So, you know, he expresses 
it's impossible to tell what he's doing in any given moment because right. there's, yeah, there's it almost feels variables. awkward to talk about it or, or yeah, yeah, you you can't you can't track it, you can't track it, right? It's so uh, it's un untrackable. But the thing about it is that if you have a bond or a relationship with a teacher like that or any teacher for that matter, um, it, it that's not even fifty percent. That's just just the spark the rest is on you for mm. follow through follow through is the thing not being connected to this or that yeah. teacher or system or whatever it's follow through sure. that's the whole thing is the follow through and if anybody lets their guard down if the ball gets dropped it's you it's on you always 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 so it's just a matter of whether those lesser concerns become important or not and if they do if the lesser concerns become important if your kids or your wife become real entities that you start to consider as real entities and you drop the view love for them cannot function as love for the divine mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah that's why it's post-apophatic i i was yeah i marriages are there's a lot of suffering in marriages, it seems like. Well, a long time ago, I asked Tracting Rinpoche, you know, the simple question there. And I have a good marriage, I should say, but but I even know, think that there's a lot of suffering in any marriage for, um, yeah. sorry to interrupt. Uh, no, I was just saying, I, I asked Tracting Rinpoche the standard question, you know, how do you know if somebody's um, stable in their realization? How do you know if they're enlightened? You know, it's the question that everybody asks all the time. And the answer is really simple. Either they suffer or they don't. If you have stable realization, you don't suffer, period. If you mm -hmm. still suffer, there's more work to do. And I don't have stable realization and I suffer. So there's my answer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. More work so to do. If, if somebody suffers, they're on the path. There's path. There's post path. The only mm -hmm. two options. Mm -hmm. Well, there's not caring at all about you know, the whole issue, which is, I guess, a third option. Um, the conventional one. Um, the nihilistic, uh, nihilistic materialism is the view of our culture and our uh, yeah. institutions and our, our, it's the view of academia. Yeah. So on that level, there is no discussion of any of this, or nor is it taken seriously. And this is what I encountered when I had my last show in a gallery. It's like this particular place in time to put my work, my maps of the divine in public in Chelsea and Manhattan and New York art world was demeaning. It ultimately became demeaning to participate in this culture. So I just realized that taking myself out of it was the only option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, my friend Alexander Bard has this term called exodology, which I like. It's like you have to exit the culture in some kind of a way. I guess that could be another trap as well. But Well, mm. opting out of the culture requires that follow-through that we talked about. Because yes. if, you, if you don't have a valid follow-through and you exit the culture, you are at that point 
by default going to be mentally ill mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. you're against everyone and everything. That's an important and, point. <laughs> important and you're point. still, de hey, yeah. you're defining yeah. your, you're, you're defining yourself and your enemy. I mean, you can't get any more dualistic than that. Mm -hmm. right, so if right, you if right. you opt out incorrectly, you you could make a horrible mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but if you if you opt out with real joy based on love of the divine, you have the disease, but you have the medicine built into the disease. If you just have the disease, <laughs> that's that's not good. Uh, so opting out of the culture is serious business. It's not a casual assertion of identity. It's not, it's not the hobby that you think. It's not the hobby of the weak. Right. It, it could get you into enormous trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Because before I really took that stance, and before I clearly articulated to myself, what connection with the culture was actually doing to my life. Um, I had constant friction that was unassessed, un uh, unassessed properly. You, know? you mean friction between you and the culture, like just, just painful contact or yeah, with, with people and with the world and. Uh -huh. Well, no, not so much with, well, yeah, with people too, but mostly with the value system of the culture. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the prevailing value system and view of the culture, which is nihilistic materialism, was at direct odds with, with everything. And it was just so profoundly sad. And also with people, too, because until I really resolved it, I just acted like an asshole all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because I'm not really socialized, you know, from the outset, I'm like, I'm coming from a very antisocial place naturally because of my upbringing. You know, I was I was sent to a place as a small child where I was there for like basically it was a day school kind of thing, but I was there for my entire childhood. Most of the other kids in this place were retarded. So, wow. Wow. So I, you know, I was there because of, you know, antisocial disposition that I had, like I've always had. So, so you've managed to turn that anti-disposition, anti, um, or not anti-disposition, anti-social um, anti dis disposition into a, into your a lifestyle that is in service of the divine. I don't know. I, I don't mean, know that's if what I've you at that. least would be aspiring to. Or I don't know if I've done that. I'd say the word is still out, mm -hmm. and I would not be so presumptuous to say that I did that. Okay. I think that there is a really good chance that some of those antisocial tendencies are going to make themselves known from time to time, you know, and that's another thing about being a retreatant is that if you live a life where you've caused a lot of damage, there's sometimes in certain cases, such as my own, it's probably better that you, you know, remove yourself from the potential for future damage. You know, psychotherapy is not going to do it. That's, you know, a worthless pursuit in my case. Um, you know, devotion and connection to the divine and practice and doing my work is the function of this life for me. Mm -hmm. Not learning to 
behave better with others. You know, that's a dead end. I, I don't have an interest in being a productive, well-adjusted member of a society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even if I could do it, I'm not sure that I would want to. But I'm certainly not sure that I could do it. But, well, th th thanks for being so. Um, thank you for being so personal about. I mean, even though you don't believe in the person, then. <laughs> I keep, but but well, but you, you know but, that's but the, but but, uh, but I appreciate you you uh, you know sharing your personal experiences and and all that. Um, well, here here's the thing, right? Like, if you're on the path, meaning that you haven't yet resolved the path right? You're still on the path. Mm -hmm. You're not done. And you might have burned through quite a few negative tendencies or, or what have you. But it's not like they can't come back. You know, and I'm on the path. I am a practitioner. I am not a master. I am a practitioner. Yeah. So one must have a certain degree of humility and, and, and a radical sense of responsibility for one's actions. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, I am a practitioner, which means I can still fuck up. Yeah. That's really So you can never have this assumption that you're better than anyone else or, or which, or do you have some kind of special, oh, I don't know. Oh, God. Well, if, if you did, it, it would be pretty, it would be pretty clear what would happen if you did. Like if you started thinking that way about yourself, you would reify and divide the concept of your own identity from those reified and, and divided concepts of the identities of others. That dualistic mess would just assert itself all over again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just, yeah, trap. Yeah. yeah, oh, the trap would, would engulf you and consume you if you, if you started to go on a, a trip like that. Absolutely. Um, so for if people, people can't really aspire to be a retreatant and opt out of the culture. I think that you find yourself in that position, either rightfully or wrongfully, and then you do the best that you can. I don't think it's a choice. Uh -huh, interesting. Yeah. I think it's a matter of disposition, actually. Hmm. Mm. I think you, either you're wired that way, and if you are, chances are you've had all kinds of things go wrong due to that wiring your whole life, and this becomes... See, that's the thing. If you, if you find yourself due to that kind of wiring in that predicament, and you find the path, oh, well, it's like you, you are living life as an expression of bliss at that point, because there's nothing about living as a as a retreatant that is not blissful if there is still some other concern that i'd rather be doing this or that you, you can't do it you can't uh -huh, do it. okay <laughs> either it's total bliss and the solution for everything or you're just hobbying mm -hmm, right so that's the difference and I would include being an artist in that. I don't think it's possible to be a retreatant and be an artist. Mm -hmm. Not in the contemporary it seems sense. Seems like you have to make a big, you know, well, I've, I've, the, the word sacrifice comes to mind. 
but yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that you can't make things that are considered art, but you know, operating with the contemporary definition of what art is would be an impossibility. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, but the contemporary version of art seems to me bullshit, though, isn't it? Isn't it completely bullshit anyway? Yeah, it's not, well, it's not really worth worth pursuing. Um, I mean, compared well, to the beautiful stuff you're doing, uh, I, I'm well, sorry so, if I'm sound like I'm flattering you or something, but it's it's uh, it was it you know. Um, well, you know, I'm making my maps. Um, to me, I look if I accidentally, and I'm using the word accidentally here. If I accidentally see some contemporary art, it's it's almost always either um, somebody's clever little statement that is meant to be, you know, clever and, and cute, like a one-liner, or it's propaganda of some sort. It's yeah. usually one or the other, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the propagandizing and the cleverness are all in favor of this sort of nihilistic materialistic view that, that is at its core, just extremely sad and lost. Mm -hmm. And there doesn't seem to be a great deal of joy about it at all. You know, it, it seems quite grim at its core, even when it purports to be vital and happy or, or whatever. And self-reinforcing. You know, it, it, it sets out with the task of affirming its own view of things. You know because that's what expression does. So if, you're, if your view is a, a view of finiteness and randomness, and that's what you're affirming, you get that reality. If your view is the view of infinity and the beauty of the divine, then you are headed in that direction. It's kind of one or the other. And I think that this is our real reason why, you know, you, you go like, for example, where you are, in Europe, and you see the work of previous centuries, and legitimately divinely inspired works of art. And you wonder, well, why don't we have that anymore? It's a pretty good question. And they don't usually have a signature on them, do they? Uh, maybe that's part of the... <laughs> um... Well, it's a, there's, a, there's an awful lot of territory there to explore. Um, you know, where, where you are, certainly for sure, my experience of looking at art is much more in Italy, central Italy, like throughout Umbria, mm -hmm. like the, like for me, the, the Sienese painters before 1450 were extremely important. Sassetta, Giovanni di Paolo, Lorenzetti, Simone Martini, those were really important artists for me digesting the kind of space that existed before the so-called discovery of perspective in the Renaissance. Before perspective, right? Yeah. Because perspective yeah. is reification and all, and all that, right? And duality and... and Well, it's, it's connected to a worldview. It's connected to a view of humanism. It becomes a propaganda machine uh, at that point, rather yeah, than I, a, service in the, a service of the divine or... The issue of humanism is really at the core of this. Humanism. Yeah. The, the issue of, of humanism, secular humanism, 
is really at the core of it. Which is not to say that I'm favoring the exoteric religious solutions mm -hmm. to that dilemma, which I do not. Mm -hmm. I am not interested either in religious or secular solutions to anything. Because when I'm talking about loving the divine and my local Orthodox synagogue is talking about loving the divine, we are most assuredly probably not talking about the same thing. But do you have any sympathy for, for let's say, the exoteric, for people who, are, who need that, or, or, um, or, or do you think it's, it's, it's destructive? Not my concern. Not your concern. Okay. Not wanting to make a judgment on that. Well, it's just not my concern. I'm just not part of the world that that exists in. It's somebody okay. else's problem, somebody else's maze to navigate, somebody else's battle to be fought. It's none of my business. My, my business is in a little house on a street, on a corner, you know, with my work and, you know, my wife. I mean, I, I like to drink coffee. You like to drink coffee. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully some of this made sense to some of the people who are watching it. I don't know what your audience is like. Uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think um, uh, it, it would be uh, very, very interesting for some people, very provocative for others, and, and that's great. Yeah. Well... You know, uh, I, I just tried to give answers to your questions. Um, I do think that this next book, Black Ether, mm. is going to be really different for people than anything else that I've ever done because of the level of intensity of it. The volume is turned way up on this one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Both okay. in terms of the writing and, the, and just the content. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so have we, have we come to a sort of natural uh, like conclusion here? Um, Unless you, you want to ask me about something, you ask me. You drinking coffee on your street uh, in your in your house, and <laughs> it felt sort of. Hmm, unless I have more questions to ask. Well, um, yeah. I, I so so I'm. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, just about your future projects, but you've already answered that question about your your secret and your career. Ask me anything you want. Now's the time, as Charlie Parker would say. Ask you any, any anything you want. Um, well, geez, uh, anything I want. Any, anything I want. Uh, Uh, well, maybe one last question, and what I I, I want to hear is I want to hear another story about about Tracton Capa and, and 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 your encounter with him. That's what I that's what I really want to hear. All right, Tracton Rinpoche has been just so ridiculously patient and nice to me in my life. Um, here's a good story that tells you kind of where he's at in relation to me and you know, kind of reflection of how I'm wired. He's known as a wrathful llama. Yes. For the most part. And that involves uh, provoking people into change and reassessment of 
uh, many of their most firmly held uh, foundational uh, parts of their of their psyche and their and their character, yeah. and the armor of their character, and he provokes people wrathfully, in a way which is not gentle. Right, and a lot mm -hmm. of this, the closer you are to him and his really close students, he can like he can like really lay into people, and provoke them, even by saying things that aren't even true, just prodding and and poking. And if you didn't know him and what he was doing, you'd think that that he was saying these abusive things, which is not the case because you know these yeah. are teaching tools. So one time he says to me, we're sitting there and he said, you ever wonder, Mr. Smith, why I don't do that to you? <laughs> and I, I said, well, is it because I'm too fragile and I couldn't take it? And he started laughing. He's like, you're not that fragile. He said, I, I don't do it to you because it wouldn't work. Now, I don't know why it wouldn't work, but something about that, that methodology uh, doesn't go with this wiring. Hmm. So I thought about that. So he's I, incredibly kind to you and instead of being incredibly fierce to somebody else or. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's never not kind. Well, I, yeah, I would, I would, his fierceness is, I should qualify it to say his fierceness is always has a kind result. Um, yeah. But, but even, even within that, the mode of expression of him to me is always like conventionally kind and conventionally mm -hmm. nice. He's, he's never, he, he expresses wrath to me, but in a way that is so far away from the way he is to other people. It's like, he's just incredibly nice to me and good to me. Mm -hmm. And that's how it's been for, for 27 years. Even when I was a jerk out there, you know, which uh, I've been many, many times. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I have my little hut out there where I come and go. I'm never expected to basically do anything or help with anything, you know, because they're all working. They're all busy working. It's a working community. They work yeah. hard. <laughs> and, yeah. and I'm just like a bum that blows through town. And he just lets you hang around. <laughs> Right. And, and the question is always like, what the fuck is, is up with this guy? If, like me and me. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it infuriates people from time to time. The, my presence there and how I'm afforded, you know, all this attention and whatnot. And it's, I don't really have an answer for it. It's, it's certainly weird, you know, being put in that or having that position made available to me. Uh, it's a very odd one of a kind kind of relationship that I have with that community where I'm the only one doing this. They're all Vajrayana practitioners. Right, right, right. I'm the only one that is not a Vajrayana practitioner. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. He decided to teach me. That's all I could say is like, I'm lucky. That's the only, that's really the, the key comment or story that I could tell you about. Tracting Rinpoche is that I'm lucky enough that that he um, is willing to do this very very unusual thing of teaching a non Vajrayana practitioner intensively for a long period of time in a very close way. 
um, I, I guess the reason he, he does it is because I really don't care about anything else. I don't have other interests. That, that much I could say. I don't have other interests. Which is why I could talk to you for another three hours if we're talking about this subject. Yeah, I get the feeling. Yeah, I get the feeling that whatever end that we could have in this conversation would, would be somewhat unnatural. <laughs> yeah, ask yeah. me anything you want. I mean, you you know, anything you want, you could ask me. Um, and I don't care what it is. Well, you're, you're friends with Greg, and I was wondering about you and Greg, and I was wondering if we could have a conversation sometime, the three of us, that came up, that came up this morning, if that might be of interest. Greg is thing a, to do. He's a really busy guy. He's a busy guy. Eh? So mm -hmm. you would have to take that up with him. It's fine with me. Um, the thing about Greg that is most distinctive is his overwhelming seriousness about his work. This is a guy who is not screwing around. Mm -hmm. he, he is down to business and he does a lot. He's a very serious person as a practitioner and in everything he does. And he's, he's really wired to be like a, a true hermit mystic. He couldn't not be. Mm -hmm. Sure. But it, very different than, than I would be, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I, I think that, that the crazy antics of my life um, are, uh, they seem as if they might be random or frivolous or, or weird or, or crazy. Greg's like the opposite. He's like a laser beam. He's extremely conscientious and yeah, maybe. Yeah, he's doing a good job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, where, whereas you'd look at my life and you'd really wonder <laughs> what kind of job I'm doing or, or what I'm even trying to be doing, you know, from, from year to year. You know, I'll tell you, it's just a really good thing that I found this work. Because if I didn't have this work, I would have literally nothing. And I mean that in the bad sense of nothing. The bad sense of nothing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys are just maybe different energetic expressions of. Um... Yeah, it's funny because because we're like exactly the same, but from two opposite vectors. Right. In a lot of ways. Right. Me and Greg. And, <laughs> right. you know, he's one of my best friends. And, um, you know, I met him through the Occult of Personality podcast where mm -hmm. he interviewed me quite early on, like really early on, like. 2009 2010 it was like even before my show at uh at kevin morris and we just stayed friends and uh you know i i invited him out to the gar and he met tracting rinpoche and it took and he became a very close student of tracting rinpoche's right 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 and he's full-time he works for tracting rinpoche mm -hmm. you know and uh, he's got his family out there and he's full time. He's the real deal. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I would love to do a, um, uh, a threefold conversation.
Yeah, I, I think I, I'd like to I'd like to hear you guys um, talk to each other, and and uh, I'd like to see what that would look like, and and hopefully I could ask pertinent questions, and it would be illuminating for. Well, we people. love to argue. You like to argue? Oh, that's even better. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't exactly use the term argue. We love to disagree or take opposing points of view. Can you give me an example, like? Of how you would disagree? Yes. Um, uh, I I love to argue with him about the uh, upholding the nature of divine in experimental phenomenology. You know, and I'm I'm a big fan of listening to atheists like uh matt dillahunty and uh christopher hitchens oh okay okay and those guys not that i agree with everything they say because i don't but i find that the tendency to veer into religious propaganda for people who agree with my points of view gets unbearable and stifling and i like to consider how on how the non-theistic view of mysticism and atheism could touch at some point, because I do believe that they could. I actually believe that there could be a form of mysticism coming in the future out of atheism that would be, that would be just as profound, but neither religious nor secular. Hmm. And I, I talk with Greg about this all the time, and you know his tendency is generally to defend religion and i like to take the standpoint of defending atheism for the point of view of the conversation oh, I mean, we good. do this almost every day over over chats huh. Huh. and it's fun huh. you so know. you think there could be a tradition that would be that would the, 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 the would emerge from atheism how, 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 what would that look like? I mean, well, it would involve one of these atheists who functions that way becoming realized. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, cause there's guys like Sam Harris that do a lot of meditation and. You know. Yeah. I, I think Sam Harris is not what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> I okay. Think, I, I think, he, you know, he's just as dogmatic as everybody else. And he's he, quite dogmatic. I mean, oh yeah. Could you find an atheist, a really good atheist who was not dogmatic and. Well, it comes down to one issue only. They would have to take their form of inquiry to the point where they are no longer reifying and dividing phenomena. If they could do that and have legitimate realization, to the contrary of all religious mythology that they love to attack, just through observing phenomena, yes, that could be a valid path and an interesting one and possibly one for the future of humanity. Hmm. It would be more like Zogchen. Hmm. Yeah. Well, if you listen to Nisar got that, he's almost sounds like he's he's he 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 is an atheist. I mean, he's almost sounds like he's he's deconstructing everything. Um, even is, though he's he's in the middle of being a he, he takes on the, the the guise of being a an Indian guru, um, but he but he almost doesn't believe in that either, or or. Yeah, that, I don't think it's an accident that I've come to this conclusion. I think that it's always sort of been there. I don't think this is a very new concept. 
Hmm. Um, but so far, I mean, Nisargadatta is functioning. Most people don't know this. They think he's just an Advaitin, but he's in the Nath lineage. It's, he's only representing one little part of the Nath lineage, and he was given that instruction by his guru. The Nath lineage is a tantric lineage that mm -hmm. does all this, you know, very elaborate sadness that he never talks about. Yeah. So he's actually an exponent of a religious tradition. Yeah. He doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering. But that same thing could happen outside of a religious tradition. That's my point. Right. That's right. my point. Mm -hmm. my, my point is that through the intensity of inquiry and observation. What, would Krishnamurti be somebody who realized that outside of a, a you know, of, of a. I don't know. Very, I don't know enough about Krishnamurti to say. Because uh -huh. he was very anti-religion. I don't know enough about his background to say mm -hmm. where how he came to his realization. So I don't know. I just enjoy listening to the atheist arguments, um, mostly because when when they make breakthroughs in their own mind there is a certain clarity about reality that on their reified level is like um, refreshing. <laughs> I don't think that they're correct about their assumptions at all, but <laughs> there's a refreshing quality to it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I like the direct interface with observation that they do. It has a clarity to it. They, they make a left turn and they end up in a dead end like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the part I'm, I'm paying attention to. <laughs> you know, Matt Dillahunty is probably my favorite of all of them because he's like a, a classical Socratic logician. He understands logical fallacies like nobody's business. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's fun to watch. That's, that's what I watch instead of sports. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but Dillahunty's great. I, I would love to meet him one day and talk with him, but I don't think he would be in the least bit interested in what I was saying, because he would think that my pursuit of realization was totally subjective. And there would be no way that I could prove to him that it wasn't. He would be huh. wrong, and I would be right, but I couldn't prove it to him, logically. It's not the way logic works. Right, because there's because you have to go you have to go trans-rational or to get it to sure. If, if you're following the, the, the fallacies of, of logic that support logical assertions mm -hmm. in their uh, in the weight of their arguments, that's not the way you make mystical points. You you won't get there from here. Yeah, you know, so, uh, but he's just so well, damn you need, good at it. you need poetry for that. You need, you need to bend. I mean, you're talking about secret mercury and um, this is not, this is not, you're not communicating in rational, logical terms. Well, um, what happens with rational, logical terms is that meanings are presented as things, as constructs as objects of consideration, right? This or that thought, this or that sense perception, this or that emotion, conclusion, whatever. What happens when you transcend that is that meanings are presented as living symbols, legitimate symbols, not signs like language has, but 
legitimate symbols as they function in mystical systems, for example, where there is a passage through a symbol. And what passes through is meaning. Meaning becomes open. It opens through symbols the way that light would open through a prism, you could say, and create a display. But there's even a level beyond that, which is that meaning is ultimately a direct expression of the mystery itself, beyond anything passing through anything else, mm-hmm. beyond any passage. And that's direct realization, which is language can't keep up with that and give an accounting of that. So logic in the sense that you know, the Socratic tradition would hold it is the ground floor of this inquiry. That's where the habit field places you when you start mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you move from there into these other places, but you can't prove them logically. So that puts you at odds with an understanding of meaning that is based in finite, temporary, relative phenomena. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I got to get going there, Mr. Sir. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this is one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life, probably. So. Oh, thank you. I that's, loved that's it. Such a nice compliment. <laughs> yeah. Um, if indeed, I should say this to, to finish up, if indeed anybody's interested in my work, my wife runs a website and sells the books and the videos, mm-hmm. and she runs everything. As a matter of fact, she wants me to go to the post office, right? Yeah. Now. Well, I was going to say also that, that, that the aesthetics of the website and everything that is done there by your wife is, 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 uh, is, is incredible as well. Um, that's 100% her. I wouldn't be able to do any of that stuff. I would be a total basket case if left <laughs> to my own devices. The fact that there are books and they are distributed is 100% Rachel. And, you know, I'm waiting for the, the Rachel Smith fan club because she, she really have to acknowledge the work that she does. I mean, it's, it's everything except drawing the pictures and doing the writing yeah well yeah what what comes out is is extraordinary i think so so yeah um, well part of that is 30 years that she had in the publishing industry you know working for time oh really wow well yeah that's not that would explain some of it yeah yeah she was a graphic designer and an art director for 30 years in the industry she's retired and she she knows what she's doing for books and print. That's what she did her whole life, books and print. Hmm. You know, and um, a lot of those publishing houses are gone. You know, There's, the industry basically collapsed. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. the record industry. Sure, right. It's like there's a vestige of it, but it's not what it was. Mm. That's what it is. So I got to take off, but thank you for this opportunity. Thanks so much. I very much enjoyed it. Me too. I loved it. Thank you so much again. Hey, do me a favor. Once you get this going, send me a link. Of course I will. Yeah. Okay. Have a good day. (laughs) Good good day. Good night. See ya.